This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Barron's Advisor Unplugged. I'm Jack Otter, head of the Barron's Wealth and Asset Management Group. Running the show with me today is Barron's exclusive coaching partner, Ray Sclafani, the CEO of ClientWise. And we are joined by Michael Kitsis, whose many titles include Chief Financial Planning Nerd at XYP. That, of course, is everyone's favorite title. Um, we're going to be thinking about this as a virtual version of a breakout session at a Barron's conference where, where Ray and I kind of go up and we mob Michael on the the stage like everyone else does and throw a bunch of questions at him. Um, I want to spend as much time on the subject as at hand, but I do want to invite Michael to give us a quick summary of the 60 million things he does before we launch. Sure. I appreciate that, Jack. Thank you so much. Uh, as you mentioned, I wear a lot of different hats. I'm Chief Financial Planning Nerd at Kitsis.com. That's uh, uh, where a lot of people find me these days, but I'm also Head of Planning Strategy at Buckingham Wealth Partners. So wealth management and TAMP services for other advisors, uh, co-founder of XY Planning Network, Advice Pay, uh, New Planner Recruiting, and FP Pathfinder. So lots of stuff to keep me busy in the advisor world these days. Indeed. Uh, so with that, take it away, Ray. All right. Hey, thanks, Jack. Uh, Michael, it's always fun to get together and we always have a good banter. We're going to move hot and fast and we're right. going to try to as, cover as many topics as possible because I know your time's valuable and it's always great to get you fast and furious from fees to crypto and maybe a little on the SEC and XY Planning Network. So Fantastic. let's jump into growth. Um, uh, you wrote in your weekend uh, reading for financial advisors, fee-only RIAs are experiencing double-digit growth in 2021. By the way, we're seeing the same in 2022. One, uh, both in terms of number of firms and total amount of assets under management, higher than any other channel of advisors. So what's your take? Is the trend going to continue? Uh, what are you seeing from your perspective on intentional growth and growth among these RIAs? So I'm, I'm certainly seeing the, the, the trend continue. I, you know, to, to me, the, the irony from the RIA model perspective is that the growth trend's almost kind of inevitable. Uh, you just... Most advisory firms have pretty good retention rates once you go into a sort of a classic RIA assets under management model, right? Just like your, your incentive is to do good things to retain your clients. Most of us figure out pretty quickly, like you yeah, probably clients are sticky, services, they say, yeah, do good stuff, try to try to help clients on an ongoing basis, retain them. So you look out there at industry numbers and, and you know, bad air quotes, bad firms often still have 90 to 92% retention rates. Great firms, you see 97 to 98% retention rates. When you only lose a client on average once every 20 years, because that's what the math comes out, even at a 95% retention rate. If you're just out there doing useful things for clients and occasionally they tell some people they know, the odds are pretty good you're going to add more clients than you subtract in a, any particular year. Markets tend to go up more than they go down. And so to me, there, there's there's almost this like inevitable reality of just the compounding juggernaut of the RA movement. It's it's just a function of the business model alone because it's so different than commission-based world where I started, where every January 1st, you wake up, your income is zero. Zero. Right. You so you go over. Yeah. Go find I mean, maybe it's a little bit with trails, but like it it, it basically goes back to zero until you go find new people to work with. And so in that world, you only can ever grow so big because your your biggest income is the biggest one year of new clients you can get because then every year you go back to zero. There's no compounding. You rarely ever invest much in a staff and team because who would want to take on a bunch of payroll when your income goes back to zero every year? Right, right. And so the, the model is just much more fixed in that commission-based transactional world, even aside from all the discussions of 
fiduciary conflicts of interest and the rest. Like just at the most basic yeah. level, if, if option one is a model where every year you start out at zero and you're limited to the biggest clients you can get in one year, and the second model keeps clients on board, defaults them to stick with you, they have to go out of their way to fire you and you have all the incentives to, to keep them on board and retain them and grow them, allow that to happen writ large for 10 or 20 years and you get basically what you've seen in the whole industry, which is compounding growth of the RIA model and, and BDs and the BD model really struggling to grow. Yeah, the uh, the the acquisitive growth in the RIA space uh, has really impacted growth. Uh, from our perspective, are you seeing yeah. the same? I very much so. I, you know, the you know, I was saying the comments just made around sort of the the inevitable compounding of of growth in that in that AUM kind of model. It, it, it's a very inevitable st- uh, solid growth. Uh, it also tends to be a really slow growth. Right, mm-hmm. just. Clients do only refer so many. We do have a couple of percent that uh, that attrition. So you know, if one out of every time ten clients brings someone in, you get ten percent growth, but you lose a couple percent for right. attrition. You lose a couple percent for withdrawals. Markets give you a little, but on top of that, just you see a lot of firms that end out in this very steady kind of five to fifteen percent growth rate. About half of that's markets, and half of that's uh, uh, organic growth from clients. Obviously, with some variability yeah. on the market part from well, year to year. What's a good What's a good benchmark for growth? Uh, for so, a firm. when I think about professional services firms and like what should growth look like, I look at numbers. I look at fifteen at the low end. I would yeah. be aiming for a number like twenty, and I'm not plucking that out of out of thin air. It's just fifteen to twenty percent growth rates. If you pull out your good old rule of seventy two, yeah, uh, means you double in about four to five years. Yeah, four to five. And right. when when you run a professional services firm, where you're going to bring in people and they expect upside, growth, career paths. You know, my my ops team wants to move yeah. up. My investment folks there want to move go. up. My associate advisors want to get into the lead chair. You need enough growth that your company gets bigger and there are more, more seats higher up on the organizational charts so that people yeah. have upward mobility over time. And just the, the, the growth rate that it takes to do that, I think in practice, is something in that neighborhood of 15 to 20%. It means you grow every, you double every four or five years. And if your company doubles every four or five years, you're creating enough seats on the bus fast enough that the, your good people who want upward mobility can get upward mobility. If you grow a lot slower than that, you know, y- your income will probably go up as the founder. The business does grow over time, but, but your not best as much people incentive. are going to get yeah. impatient. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk about uh, this 15 to 20% growth in terms of managing capacity. I get asked all the time, how many clients can one advisor manage and the service model, the segmentation strategy, the revenue per client really makes a big difference. So how does an advisor go about, if growing at that rate, managing their capacity effectively? Well, the first thing I'd, I'd, I'd answer to that is we have to really get clear and honest about the services that we're offering and what we're doing for clients. You know, yeah. we, we use financial advisor very broadly. So you see <laughs> financial advisors at, you know, like large retail financial services firms where three to 400 clients per advisor is not, is not uncommon. You see family offices that do financial advisors where an advisor who's really full is like, oh man, I'm so exhausted. I got my eighth client and it's drowning me on the top of the other seven because, you know, they all have like a hundred million dollars each in crazy complex situations. And, And there's a wide range in between. When I look at kind of baseline financial advisors who are working with a kind of like the, the mass affluent and the mere millionaires, which is where most of us are, call this like 200,000 to 2 million is where yeah. 
the yep. bulk of us as financial advisors are. When I look at the mass affluent, the mere millionaires, if you are a firm that's pl- very planning focused, like we're really doing plans, we're going deeper, we're having the conversations. The number I tend to see firms start topping out at is 60 to 80 clients per advisor. Okay. Now that that includes anybody who is client facing. So that could be an advisor with 60 to 80. That could be an, an advisor with an associate sitting as a two-person team who can now maybe get to 125, 140, maybe okay. 150. But it's going to start feeling a little, a little heavy. That that's where I find firms start topping out. Three-person teams get to get to 200. If I talk to an advisor and they say, like, I'm the only one, I'm the lead on all my clients, and I got you know 150 plus clients myself, I can pretty much guarantee you that uh, the majority of them you probably don't see more than once a year. Uh, it would be difficult for you to pick most of them out of a lineup because you just don't see don't them, don't them. and yeah. don't know them very well. Now, I'm sure someone out there is the exception who is just like the <laughs> like the the name and person savant who can do this with like 500 people in their head. If you're that good, you should probably be in politics, not this. because That is a, a gifted skill. But most people just like we are even aside from time in the day and capacity in the rest, although that's a constraint. You like your brain runs out of space. I mean, this is actually a, a research phenomenon. It's called the Dunbar number after Robin Dunbar, who was the, the researcher yeah, who still right. found this. There's a particular part of your brain that does like associations to other human beings. It's it's how we kept kept track of each other in the herd. And just that part of our brain, when you compare to other species, would predict an average uh, an average herd size of about 150 people. And if you look throughout human history, like Military units have historically topped out at 150 to 160 people. Anthropologists have found tribes in, in uh, um, like you know, tribes uninteracted with the rest of the world who figured out on their own when the village gets to 150 people, it gets too big. We need to split right. it off. And there right. was a study a few years ago. The average person on Facebook has 152 friends. So even in the virtual world, it, 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 it effect it, is holding true. It, it, it holds. And, and at some point, just you get an hour's limitation as well. Yeah, right? that's fair. That's fair. I mean, 2,000 two working hours in a year, you can't do all that client facing. At best, you probably get 40 to 60% of it if you're lucky. It's yeah. 800 to 1,000 hours in a year. I mean, if you got 150 plus clients, you're down to five or six hours per year per client for totally. everything right. Right. you do with them, which means like meeting prep, meeting follow-up for All one meeting it. and a couple yeah. of emails yeah. and, and, you're, and you're blown out and just, you're only going to know your clients so well with one meeting a year. And okay. Great insight. Let me move us emails. forward and talk M&A activity for a moment because yes. it is hot. I know we touched on it briefly. Hey, it's been six coming up now. This will be the seventh year in a row record number of M&A transactions, uh, deal size, both in the advisor space, but also in the uh, 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 investment management, asset management space. You know, when I talk to PE firms, they say, man, it's never going to end. I recently uh, this year have interviewed uh, Dave DeVoe, uh, Dan yeah. Sievert, Liz Nesvold, and, and the bankers even think, oh my gosh, this thing is getting a little uh, 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 frothy, but it's only going to continue. I'm wondering what your take is. Is this PE money good for the the private equity money, VC money good for the RIA channel? Is it going to continue? And what do deals look like moving forward in the future? So a lot, like lots of lots of good questions there. You know, when I look over, so just let's start with the ongoing continuation part. I I, I don't see the continuation slowing down any anytime soon. There is still frankly, not only a lot of money, but from every measure we can track and see as well, there, there's still more money to buy firms than there are yeah. firms that are ready to be sold. In fact, the the in the classic case, 
more money chasing fewer goods is literally causing yeah, right inflation in this expansion. case lifting yeah. of valuations of firms and we're seeing and we're seeing valuations of advisory firms lift very noticeably in the past 2 years in particular they were they were super solid for a lot of years. People kept saying like, oh, it's really high. I don't know if it could stay this high. And then it wouldn't go yeah. down. And, and it was like seven, eight stay. times EBITDA. Yeah. And, and people and, were feeling, whoa, it won't continue. And now we're seeing and, 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Right? And the past two years, it has, it has lifted up further. Yeah. Now, a lot of this is following what I what I I think is for a lot of industries, kind of the, the, the classic way that PE dollars flow, which is you know, valuations are getting pit up in part because there are only so many firms out there on the market at all. There are only so many to be bought. If you look at, uh, I'll give a shout out to Dave DeVoe. I think they do great research and data on tracking this space. DeVoe's companies tracked almost 200 billion plus dollar RIA deals in the past two years. There are only about 800 firms in yeah, total yeah. larger than a billion. Yeah, the market size for those so opportunities. A is quarter of them have turned over in the past <laughs> two years, which means I don't know if it can get a lot more than this because we're we're going to run out. Now, we won't entirely run out because uh, PE firms tend to change their change hands about every five years. So by three or four years now, we'll probably have turned over the majority <laughs> the of them. Be, but uh, then like the ones that were bought first will get sold to someone new. And we'll cycle again. And so I, I do think you're going to see some of that start to play out. We've had a little bit of it already where some of the early PE acquisitions have now been exited to another PE firm right, that's right. that's doing the next cycle. Well, the turn is also but, shrunk a little bit, right? They're not yeah, hanging on but, as long. We're seeing some of that beginning. Uh, begin. But but here's the thing, like, you know, all well and good for those that play in the mega RA space that do a lot of those large deal acquisitions. I mean, we live some of that at, at, at Buckingham. We, we, we acquire a number of firms at Buckingham as well. Uh, but yeah, I just say like for, you know, for, for that's us mere mortals who are just like going about our day running our advisory firms, helping our clients doing our thing while people who write large checks, write large checks to other people who write large checks and do their thing. <laughs> uh, like, I, I don't know how much, I don't know how much impact it really actually has for a lot of us as the, as the average advisor beyond it, it does, it does frame up a couple of interesting things. Number, uh, number one, just for anyone who's wondering, like, is it worth, you know, the, the, all the work it takes to go and build a firm, like, yeah, I mean, just enterprise value is being rewarded in the, in the marketplace. I think it's at least indirectly supportive of the ongoing shift to independent RIAs because these deals are only happening for RIAs and not and not BDs. And, and not to knock advisors who built some great practices at BDs, but when you sit down to sign a contract that says someone's going to write you a, whatever it is, a seven-figure check, an eight-figure check for your lifetime work. And then they read the legal language and say, oh, you don't actually own your clients. Your clients are your clients, your broker dealer, not your, not your firm. Uh, like when you get to that legal contract language, because someone's going to write you an eight-figure check, the technicalities of those relationships suddenly really, really matter. And just the reality, like it says registered representative on the business card for yeah. a reason. You're legally yeah. a representative of your brokerage firm seeing their clients as their rep. And it is different than actually owning your enterprise the way it happens for someone in an RIA. And so uh, I, I do see this continuing to kind of pull towards the RIA model for those that care about building and selling enterprise value. To me, the most interesting part of it, uh, you know, there's all this discussion out there, particularly in the independent advisor world about the, the dearth of succession planning how little succession planning is. I know, Ray, you and I have even had some discussions. We've bannered uh, about that. Yeah, uh, in fact, I've got uh, about, a question for you about that. About this as well. But here's the interesting thing that comes from this much buying power and buying demand for firms. 
I think it actually takes a lot of pressure off of the need for firms building their own internal succession plans for, for the simple reason that, look, at the end of the day, if you just decide, hey, I've been doing this for remember, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years sometimes, yeah. and just I'm, I'm ready to be done. I, I didn't go build a succession plan. I don't really know who to sell to. I don't have a thing. You're like, well, I, I guess this, I'm going to go to one of those places like this becomes an option and, for and list and list my firm and see if maybe someone else will come and take over. Like, you get you get like 50 buyers for every seller right now. Oh, okay, out there in the market. I, I, so I have, you, right? I, yeah, go ahead. If you want to exit, you're not going to lack people who are willing to come in. You're going to have to do the work to vet them and make sure you get one that fits you and aligns to your philosophy right. and is going right. to take good care of your clients. But but there are a lot of those out there. That was very different than 10 years ago, where if you didn't have a succession plan, you were going to go away. Like there were no there was no one to take yeah, over, yeah. except maybe like your buddy across town where you had a, a cross town deal. Like you take my clients, <laughs> something happens to me, I'll take your clients, something happens to you. And, and those deals always blow up because you don't actually have the capacity to take someone else's full client base overnight. But but larger firms that acquire do. And so I I see this growth of, I sort of distinguish succession planning from exit planning, right? Succession is an internal process. Very different, yeah. Exit is just like, I need some continuity to make sure that my clients are cared for and I'm not here anymore. And just all of this M&A activity and the amount of capital that's flowing in just starts at PE and, and ripples Works all the way, way down the yeah. system. Like big firms buy medium firms, medium firms buy small, medium, small, medium buy smaller ones, like all the way down the line. It creates a really interesting backstop. I mean, we're, we're seeing this at, at Buckingham of advisors come say like, I, I didn't have a succession plan. I'm a planning focused firm. I do a lot of tax. That's kind of our focus as well. Like we have a similar investment philosophy. We have a similar planning philosophy. We have a similar tax philosophy. Like I don't have a succession plan. I need someone to take care of this. Like, can I, can I do a deal with you guys? And it's like, yes, it's happening. Yeah. For us. Michael, and, and Jack, other... I know you've got a good question. Yeah. Michael, I want to ask a question about this from the other perspective. Ray mentioned 13, 14 times multiples. So the, it, it strikes yeah, me. So that, that that's big firms, not small firms. Yeah. Big right. firms. Well, well, that's well, much bigger firms. Which yeah. is fine. But my question is this, if, if the private equity firm is putting that kind of evaluation on a practice, they are looking for a return that to me may <laughs> not align with the fiduciary responsibility to the client. That would concern me as a client. If I knew that, I, you know, this, this firm I'm with is going to have to produce the kind of return that, that, private equity firm wants. Well, what do you think about that? Should, should we be so, concerned about that? So I, I do think it's a concern. I mean, just, you know, I, like right, money has strings attached. And yeah. so for any firm that you're getting involved with, particularly yeah. if, if they're anywhere yeah. in this chain where money is flowing from some big check place, you got to understand where the check's coming from and what, and what their motivations are. That being said, like, it's worth noting there, there are a lot. So very true. Like firms put money in because they want to return on their investment. There are a lot of ways to skin that cat in the, in the advisor space, though. You know, at the, at the most basic level, there's what has been the classic roll-up consolidation strategy that's existed in multiple industries. So mo most basic context, Jack, like, uh, you know, smaller firms might still sell for anywhere from like six to nine times EBITDA. Mid-sized firms, sometimes you see anything from eight to 12. The really big firms, you can get to these, like, we've seen 11 to 14s, but if I look at a publicly traded financial services firm, right? If I like literally go to the stock market, start pulling up PE ratios, you can see 18s, you can see 20s, at least sometimes at good market peaks, you see numbers over 20. And so for a subset of PE firms, they're going to say, let me get this straight. I can buy a bunch of firms at 12, make them large enough in the aggregate that they could be the size of a publicly traded company, issue that into public markets at maybe just, air quotes, like just 
15 times or 18 times. And that means even if I, if I bulk all these firms together and like we had no doubt, we find no economies of scale. We find no cost savings. <laughs> we find no synergies at all. Like we don't even do any of that stuff. And usually there's some of that, but if we do none of that, You're I could buy these firms at 12 times. I could sell them at 15 to 18 times in the That's aggregate. Right. And my value goes up by 25%. Just because I mashed, I, I mashed firms together, right? There, there, there is a size premium that exists in the marketplace, and there is a, a certain uh, multiple that the street gives just for companies that have a certain size and level of mass that it creates a a, a greater level of stability. Right. So, so, Michael, let me let me intrude because there's a conflict that's playing for me in my mind mm -hmm. in a juxtaposition, and I want I want to hear from you. In one respect, you know, I've got you on record as saying this is the golden age for solo advisor practice. Yes. Okay. And then the other side of you, you know, I know you spell fiduciary with a big F yes, in all caps in bold. I love that about you, by the way. And and so I've got this juxtaposition. We've got we've got this PE multiple expansion, MA coming in. We've got these golden age for solo practices, but if they don't have a real exit strategy and a plan in place. And we know the data tells us that whatever the RIA is filing with the SEC, the majority of those advisors, large majority of those advisors say, if they had to pull the ripcord and, and command that plan, it's not likely to work well. Like what should advisors be doing here? What's the fiduciary in you guide these other fiduciaries to do? Like, do you so wake up and pay attention to PE or do you do something different? So again, so it sort of distinguishes that like, you know, what big firms with big dollars do and what us mere mortals do. Again, <laughs> I, I don't think for most of us mere mortals, it's like the, like the PE stuff doesn't play into it. We're, we're not getting bought those multiples. We're not looking to do that ride. I'm not right. looking to like mash into a thing where the bigger gets bigger, gets bigger. And we bulk up and do the financially engineered deal. I mean, it might be good economically, but as you said, like so many of us, the end of the day, like, I did this to serve clients and give them value and give them right. advice, like yeah. not, not advising the, and planning, not to be right. part of the right. financial engineering exercise, even though it may, may be profitable. So yeah, again, so here's how I think about it from, from the average firm's perspective. You're probably not playing the, the, the PE game much or at all. Um, at, at best, just the PE dollars may or may not be attached to the thing you finally sell to if you decide to sell ex externally. The reason it does matter though, again, is, so I, from the fiduciary end, to me, the, the thing that matters at the end of the day is client continuity. Continuity of client service is what matters. It is not acceptable that like something happens to you and you get hit by the bus and the clients literally don't even realize the captain is no longer on the ship and there's right. no one at the helm. Right. And you've got like fiduciary discretionary management of their accounts and you're literally not there anymore because you're in the hospital. So continuity of client service to me is the absolute paramount number one Rule thing number that, one. Yep. that matters from that just ultra level of the duty that we owe that we owe clients the only distinction i make here is that uh you know therefore hire junior advisor and train them and develop them up in the firm in order to to fulfill that is not the only way to go is not the only right. way to go about that now uh because there are a lot of firms out there these days there's enough money moving around that if you say Hey, I'm not able to serve my clients anymore. Uh, in incapacity, accident, death, and your spouse unfortunately needs to make that call. Like there are firms that will buy, and there are firms that will buy pretty pretty quickly. I mean, just even in Buckingham, like we've had some emergency takeover situations right. where we've gotten involved and had to do it. The thing that I do think is missing in the industry, though, kind of yeah, getting back us. to your question, Ray, is yeah. 
these should be written in agreements. Like what we're missing is a giant swath of call it buy sell agreements. Maybe that's too binding. So like contingent optional buy sell agreement, like you don't have to bind yourself into like, here's the person who I'm going to sell no matter what for the rest of my life. And I don't get any other choices. But if you don't have an agreement with someone yeah. that says, this is the firm who's going to step in to make sure my clients are served. If something happens to me and I can't come back again, you, you need that agreement yeah. and you need to find yeah. a firm that can do that. And just from a practical perspective, that Great tends advice. to be larger firms yeah. that does this for smaller firms because just they have the capacity, right? And most advisors I know that even have these, they're, we mentioned they're like, they're the crosstown agreement. Like I got a buddy, I've known him for 27 years. From <laughs> but, like but they're informal days. And, and yeah. If, if something happens to me, you take mine. If something happens to you, I'll take yours. But the reality is I'm already really comfortable in my practice with my 82 great clients. If something happens to you and I have to handle your 60 clients overnight. I mean, I know some advisors that have been through that. They blew up their, they blew up their business because they had to handle 60 other clients in an emergency situation. Right. They had to completely neglect their clients. And they had to put the other person's clients first because they signed an agreement with them, which means they had a debt obligation to a spouse that said, I'm right. buying your clients. So I have That's to not screw up that revenue. a big problem for the industry. It's a huge problem in our industry. Yep. So I... the. The the so I, I totally agree. Just that I do think we have an obligation to our clients at a very fundamental level to ensure our continuity of service. Which means I, I think it's a wonderful age for solo advisors, but just hanging out with like no plan in place if something happens to you is is not cool. Wrong. Is is not cool at all. But I got to bring my successor in and train them up and spend the three five seven year process of developing them. Like wonderful path. I am all for internal yeah. session development plans. Like I you know. Uh, champion this with next gen going back 17 years, but it's not the only way to get it done. It's not the only way to skin that cat. Uh, and, and I think the amount of dollars out there now and just the size of firms that can do acquisitions means there's more opportunity than ever to start creating, I'll, I'll call them like formalized exit plans. Got it. That says, okay. you know, I, I am going to stay here. I, you know, I am going to die at my desk in the boots on, but there is like but a button that gets pressed if I die at my desk in the boots yeah. on. So people come drop in right away and make sure my clients are cared for if I like, actually manage so, to so die. So are you suggesting that on. should show up in the ABV? I, you know, I think it probably should. Okay. All right, I, so I don't know me, that it's I, out there. So like my, my non-legal non-compliance yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, no, that's fine. Uh, Look, perspective, a- but I, I think it should like, it's, it's either in the ADV or in a business continuity plan that you should be willing to share with your clients to say like, look, hey, I just want you to know. Full disclosure. Here it is. But it, like if okay. something happens to me, this is what happens. And like, it should be a positive conversation, right? I'm so yeah. excited to serve you as long as I can. But if something ever it's happens part of the to value me, proposition. There, like there's a firm here that can make sure that you're taken care of as well. So nothing bad will happen and you will have continuity. Okay. So I, look, Jack and I have like five or six minutes left with you. And I want to rapid fire a couple of questions, Jack. Okay. Mind. Great. Yeah. Sure. Uh, where do you want to start? You want to start with uh, fees? Yeah. Let me go fees. Uh, uh, so, so we're seeing big trends where advisors are not necessarily lowering their fee on AUM, but we're seeing a pickup on retainer-based fees, planning fees. What's your uh, take on the future of fees? So future of fees is up. I'm, I'm going to say it right here. Future, future of fees is up. Future of fees, though, is only up for the people that are moving into the planning and advice business. Okay, good. Got you it. only get the higher fees if you move up the value proposition chain. Okay. Yep. And I'm not saying that to be harsh on some people of no, like, no, no. you're There's not valuable now, solely, but just 
like yeah. the industry has moved, right? 40 years ago, I sold stocks and then, you know, discount brokers came. So <laughs> then I sold mutual funds and then online internet supermarkets came. So I sold diversified portfolios and now technology diversifies your portfolio in like two clicks of a mouse button. So pressure's on us again to move up the value chain. But, you know, we've seen this very clearly in our Kitsis research studies on pricing that we do through, through Kitsis.com. Uh, uh, planning fees have been up 15 to 25% over the past two years. And those were up from the, from the prior studies that we've done. We're seeing planning fees lift. The AUM fees are flat or even possibly slightly down, but only slightly down because we're substituting in planning fees for the AUM fees. So you know, if, if, the, if the old model on a million dollar client was 1%, the new model might end up being 75 bips plus a $2,500 planning fee or 50 bips plus a $5,000 planning fee or, or 50 bips plus a $6,000 planning fee because our planning is actually so awesome now, we price it up a little. Price it up. And, and, what I'm, and what I'm seeing more and more is the more firms build their financial planning value proposition and really get good at it and start charging for it and realize how much their clients value it, it's giving them pricing confidence, confidence and fee confidence, and we're actually seeing the fees pick up. So if it's just like, how many basis points can I get to manage a diversified portfolio? Not, uh, not terribly bullish on, yeah, on, right. on fees there. You're, <laughs> you're going to feel the pressure. But And you know, we've written about this for, for years. The industry keeps talking about this as a fee compression issue. And the truth is, it's not a fee compression issue. And if you look 10 years since the robo-advisors showed up, the average revenue yield of an advisory firm has basically not moved a basis point in 10 years of the robo-advisors that were supposed to squeeze us. But what you did see was a multi-year sequence where margins came down Absolutely. and now have started to come back up again because what happened, we didn't have fee compression. We did have margin compression because it was a value-add game on, right? I, I used to hire, yeah. you know, I, I used to hire random well, not random. Like I used to hire folks who are very personal. Now I have to go get them CFPs. And then if I get them CFPs so that they do more planning stuff, I have to pay them more because they demand more of that. Right. And then my clients but, but want the higher capacity service. Increased in the so value I need, more, I need yeah. more CSAs to handle my clients to make sure I've got that white glove, higher touch service. And all of that pressure on add more value, add more value, add more value meant our margins got squeezed while we were doing the value reinvestment. So we have had a margin squeeze, <laughs> yep. but, we're but we're recovering from it okay. now. Let me go. We have, we have, I got one last quick question because I'm dying to ask you this question. Then Jack wants to probably wrap us up <laughs> uh, on digital assets. I saw a quote um, and I'm only bringing this up because Rick Edelman and I've worked a little bit uh, together and yep. his leadership in our industry on the digital asset council for financial advisors has been pretty yep. good, but you're on record as saying cryptocurrencies present more problems and perhaps less upside. So my question isn't Bitcoin, right? Blockchain, right? It's really this taking all those digital assets, Bitcoin, blockchain, what's your take on how financial professionals need to stay abreast of the latest innovations to really be in uh, uh, value to the client. So I, I, I will say, um, so when you sit in the advisor chair, like clients come at us with all sorts of stuff, right? They're like, Hey, I heard about this thing from my, <laughs> my, my, my uh, brother-in-law's cousin who says like, this is the hot thing, but I'm not really sure. Can you check it out? And, and, and we like, we just, we get these advisors, a lot of it's just like, yeah, let me save you some time. No, like the answer, no, just the answer. I'm not even going to analyze that much. Your, your, your brother-in-law's cousin did not find a magical thing that gives 11% returns guaranteed. Like, <laughs> no, it like, it's just not flying. We, we just, we have this sort of gut response a yeah. lot for 
these new things that sound like they're crazy and harebrained of like, just no, there's no magical returns that give you that much money. The answer is no, I'm not even going to research it. And, and, and just, we have this pressure advisors, like, you know, it takes two minutes for someone to pitch a crazy thing to our clients and two to 20 hours for us to vet it properly to figure right. out whether it's legit or not. Right. It's a horrible unfairness about the business. And it means like, I literally can't evaluate everything that gets pitched. We just tend to have certain gut responses. And then I think a lot of the advisor community has right or wrong, had that mentality around crypto. I, I think we're at least shifting that perspective. Uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, I was on a, a uh, you know, uh, uh, an event late recently with uh, talking about crypto. And, you know, there's a lot of dynamics around just the fundamental investment thesis. I'll admit, like, I'm not entirely sold. I mean, if if crypto went up as much in the next six years as it did in the past six years, crypto would be larger than the entire aggregate market cap of every stock in the world combined. And I don't think that's going to happen. So, like we are on record. It, yes, I'll go on record. <laughs> here like first. It can't do in the future what it did in the past. And then I don't know quite what it does in the future. And I have trouble right. with you know just the investment thesis because I don't know how to evaluate uh, in intrinsic value on it. And I'm a stodgy conservative investor. But I do think we've reached a point where we are past the sounds crazy. Let's just sort of dismiss this the way that I sometimes have to do with my you know clients, brothers, brother-in-law's cousins thing. <laughs> And I think we're at least in the realm now where you do have you do have an obligation, I think, as a professional to start getting a little more educated in the crypto space. Like it is clearly here to stay now, whether that's because it's more about blockchain transforming the world and how we interact with it and not necessarily the crypto assets in particular. We'll see. But uh, I I do think we've got an obligation that it, it's time to at least start getting more educated. I'm, I'm willing to ring that bell. That yeah, Michael, I wish we had more we're time. There. This has uh, been awesome. Jack, it was like hanging on for a fast ride. So thanks uh, for- I know. Uh, I, I love the fact that Michael, your camera literally can't keep up with your movement. You're coming in and out of focus. <laughs> yes, I'm a hand talk, like I'm awful. a hand talker. Hand talking is not good for autofocus cameras. Yeah, I <laughs> uh, know that was funny. We literally don't have time for the actionable ideas, which are Baron's hallmark. So, Michael, we're going to have you back. We're going to do this again. Awesome. Ray and I have a lot more questions for you. I do want to endorse. You said two to twenty hours. It's time now for any advisor who hasn't put that time in to do so on digital assets. You've got to have an answer for that question. Even if you come down where Michael did, there's no intrinsic value. Don't do it. Uh, but you've got to put in that time. Uh, I'm going to take the, um, the the seat here to, to offer two sure. actionable ideas. One is we've got an alts conference in just two days on October 28th. Um, if you are interested in attending that to learn a little bit more about alternative investments, uh, send us an email conference info at barons.com. Uh, and if you have not yet gone to barons.com slash advisor, you got to do that. Um, we hope you enjoy that. Um, to close, I need to give a nod to our sponsor, Capital Group, without, who, without whom this thing just would not have been possible. Uh, Capital Group knows there's a hunger among advisors for great practice management content. Recently launched something called Practice Lab. A lot of the stuff we've just been discussing, you can find it there. A particular note, I just read a good piece on why setting up an advisory board, or as Ray calls them, advisory groups, uh, might be a good idea for your practice. So check that out. Um, that is all for us. I got to throw a huge uh, thanks to Michael Kitsis. You were great. Uh, Ray, as always, you were wonderful. I know people learned a lot. Um, if you have any feedback, send it to me. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Jack.otter at barons.com. Uh, we'll be hosting these events periodically. Again, I hope with Michael uh, over the coming months. So keep an eye out for an email on that. Uh, once again, Ray, Michael, thank you so much. 
You got My it, Jeff. Pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Good to see you. Peace. Good to see you, Ray. Thank you for bringing the blue glasses. I appreciate That's it, that. man. You got it. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. And we'll yes. see your viewers soon. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.